Up From Work podcast. My name's Dave Swillam. Let's get ready to hustle. Welcome back to the Waking Up From Work podcast. This is your host, Dave Swillam. You're listening to episode 129 of the show today. This is where we get to work, making work a passion, living, creative, full-time. This is where we interview musicians, entrepreneurs, creatives, and people just living alternative lives, doing what they want to do instead of what they think that they might have to do or something like that. So tonight, I am, uh, I'm, I'm pumped up to be joined from the West Coast again, but not even just West Coast US. We're, we're being joined from Vancouver here with Jimmy Fritz, who is a author. He's a musician, a filmmaker, and I'm sure a bunch of other things I'm going to find out about you tonight, sir. But uh, also, like more specifically, when we're talking about that, we are talking about uh, a book tour that he's doing right now. And I'm sure we'll get into like all these different pieces. Uh, his book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer, that talks about tons and tons of travel and tons and tons of time with psychedelics, which I think is something that we're going to find is a conversation that's more and more frequent in today's times, even though I didn't live in some of the times that it may have been more frequent at, at one time or another. In the, and so I'm, I'm excited to hear about his insight on, on that trend and all of these different ways that he's lived life here. So welcome, Jimmy. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. Nice to be here. Good to have you all the way from the West Coast. Yep. Vancouver, Canada. I was telling Jimmy, I was trying to get up there before some of the lockdowns, and I still plan to get up there because I've heard it's a beautiful place to be. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. It's the best place I've ever lived, and I've lived in about I don't know, a dozen different countries and traveled in about two dozen others, and this is the best place that I've found. So that's where, we, that's where we decided to, to stay. That's a pretty convincing argument then to, to go check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, highly recommended. So Jimmy, like just for, I know that we have like a, a lot of these different things that you've done and like even the book, like where it summarizes, like for the amount of time that you've done them, we've got a lot to hit on this podcast and one, one show here, but do you want to just run people who haven't read your book, uh, haven't read your book yet, or maybe they haven't bumped into you. Who's Jimmy Fret? Uh, who is Jimmy Fritz? What's this book about? And kind of where, you know, what's brought you through this life? You know, I know we're covering literally 40 or 50 years, I think you said in this book, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, the book starts when I'm 15 and I have my first, you know, experience with mind altering drugs, which was actually alcohol and very shortly after marijuana. So it's basically a story of, um, of my geographical and philosophical and psychedelic journey through life from age 15 to what I am now is 65. Wow. So it's a 50 year journey. Um, and, uh, it's all the stories basically gathered together with the, the, the sort of important, uh, stories about psychedelics mostly, uh, all around the world in, uh, you know, a couple of dozen different countries. Hmm. So it covers my, uh, 50 year journey through, through psychedelics, both, geographically and, and psychologically and philosophically. Wow. That's, uh, that's such, that's like a, a long time range to be consistent with different, 
uh, different pieces of life. Like every, every piece of life, you have different things that you're contemplating, trying to figuring based off of like the things you've experienced so far in the modern time. So it's like many different portions of life. And I know that you just spoke on how much you've traveled. So I'm sure that you've probably got some really interesting insight on, on really analyzing that. Yeah. And in terms of the, you know, the content of your show is that I've, because I've done so much traveling and been on the road so much in my life and been in, you know, lived in a lot of different countries, I've had to find alternatives to work, you know, because I've never really had a regular job, never had a nine to five job where I get a paycheck every day. It's just ongoing. Indefinitely. Yeah. Yeah. I've never experienced that. And I've always kind of, I've always been terrified of that because I'm not sure I could have been able to do it. You know, it would have just been such a, such a grind. I have to see a goal ahead of me. I have to have a creative or, you know, a, a, some kind of a goal ahead of me to be working towards. And uh, so the regular kind of nine to five status quo existence right. just would never really worked for me. So I was more or less forced to find alternatives. So for the first, um, you know, for the first like five or 10 years, I was mostly touring around Europe, North Africa and a bit of Asia. And I was, I was uh, making a living playing the guitar. I would play the uh, busking in the street. Okay. I'd play guitar and harmonica. And that was a way to make money and to keep traveling and to be able to do it anywhere at any time. So that was a real, that was a real boon. And then I just pick up, you know, on jobs here and there, just enough to get a ticket to the next place or whatever. So, yeah, I've always managed to stay one scam ahead of a job. (laughs) (laughs) And a job is a big scam. So, you know, hey. It can be. It's a bit of a con job, really, because the promise is, is you, you give us your life. You give us all your time. We'll give you a little bit of money, just enough to get by and keep you working. And then you know, the promise is, is that you're going to be retire when you're 65. But I mean, a lot of jobs don't even have retirement plans. Most people working in, uh, you know, low paid jobs don't have any retirement plan or any, any, any promise of, you know, a nice retirement at the end of it. And even if it does, you've still, you know, basically given up 50 years of your life to get this retirement. So I think there's a lot of life to live before you retire. You need energy, you know. I mean, by the time you retire, you're all, you know, you've got no energy to do anything anyway. So even if you've got the time and money, you haven't got the the energy. You run out of gas after about 65. (laughs) It happens happens right about now. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad I did most of my living before I hit this point, because if I had to start living now, I just wouldn't have the wouldn't have the, the energy for it. Right. And busking on the street is probably not always like the, I'm sure it's, it's, it relieves you of a lot of like bullshit that you shouldn't have to deal with. You know what I mean? It's a simpler way to not deal with stupid things, but I feel like that's also probably pretty tiring too. You know, you got to get up and get out. Yeah. I mean, you can't play for that long on the street. Like, I mean, I did a one man band once and I could play for maybe an hour or an hour and a half max. And I'd be exhausted because you have this huge bass drum on your back and a, a bass drum on one foot and a cymbal on the other. And then you're playing the guitar and then hyperventilating into a harmonica and a gazoo. <laughs> and it's, God bless um, you, man. <laughs> it's totally exhausting. So you can only play for so much. I mean, I made a living in Toronto one time. I was played, played Friday nights, Saturday nights and uh, Sunday nights. So three nights a week for two hours a night. Basically, yeah. so six hours a week, and uh, I would make a living. You know, I had an apartment, I had food, I had a good time. Awesome. And, uh, it was a, it was a pretty good living, so it can be done. Yeah, and that sounds awesome. I mean, 
I love playing music and that's not even a significant amount of time that you're putting in right. to be able to do all of that. So that's awesome. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, of course, I've, you know, put together duos and trios and played in bands and stuff. And so did quite a bit of gigging and concerts and stuff like that, but that's, that can be really exhausting too. I mean, it's not an easy life as yeah. a musician, you know, you're humping gear around, you're setting up, you're, you know, and then it's late nights and then you're staying in hotels. It's not, it's not, it's not a great life really, unless you're making tons of money. It's not really worth it. I yeah. gave up performing about 10 years ago. So or maybe even 20 years ago. It just became uh, too much of a grind for not enough money. So I just found other things to do. I get that. I've always had a lot of irons in the fire. So I've always tried to do a bunch of different things, you know, buying and selling things and trading. And, uh, you know, later on I was into real estate. And, uh, so, yeah, I've always had a lot of irons in the fire. And I think that's a good idea because if you just mm. have one thing that you do and that goes down, you're screwed. But if you have lots of little things and lots of little side hustles and side jobs and scams and this and that, then you can just keep it going and you keep it varied. It's a much more interesting life. Hmm. I like that. That's a really cool. I think that uh, people kind of like pass by that, like as a, as a way to explain it, I guess, because it's like, I don't know, they don't think to break it down or something like that. But like, I guess, uh, well, there's multiple things I want to, break out from what you just said. But first of all, for the touring portion of it, I used to work live sound and I would be there when people got off of the tour bus and there'd be famous people and they're making pretty good money. Yeah. Uh, but people sometimes like they get hooked into the glam. They're like, Oh, if I could only be a touring famous musician. Well, these people, sometimes they're touring 200, 300 days a year and not seeing some of the people that are close to them. And, and they get out of the tour bus at like two or 3 PM after they were up till one or 2 AM and they're in a city, they don't, they would get off the tour bus. And the first thing they'd say, would be like, where am I? They don't even know where they are. Cause it's just right. like so fast. And so like, I'm sure that that's still a dream, but also like, you're totally right of like, that's still exhausting too. Like a dream can be exhausting. And for yeah. those different uh, irons in the fire, I really like that explanation because you were just saying how, you would always constantly be figuring out like what, what is the next thing that just keeps this going? Whereas like sometimes like the fear for people who have a conventional work where they look at these alternative methods and they're like, this is so scary to me, but you're like, well, yeah, but like it, it would be scary if you just like put all of your eggs in one basket, like that could be scarier to me. And you, you're just talking about these different things that are all happening as a way to like keep moving and, and molding. What are some things that I guess, got you through. And then I want to go back for a second and kind of go through your history more, but what are some things that you've, you've done along the way is those different irons that you put in the fire, Jimmy? Uh, various things in various places. You know, I would, uh, I've always worked for myself. So if I'm, you know, sort of always been my own boss, I've always made my own hours. And, um, if you want to make more money, you do a bit more work. If you've got enough, you work less. And, um, yeah. so I've had uh, gardening companies. I've had a roofing company, I've, uh, for the last 20 years, I've had a very successful business, side business, uh, uh, selling wholesale neem oil. And that's, Interesting. Been, that's been very profitable. Huh. Also bought some real estate over the years. So I rent apartments and uh, got lots of little things going on. My wife's an artist and she sells paintings. I write books and we sell books. You know, so there's all these little things going on. And uh, it's, I've always kept it buried. And when one thing goes down, that gets replaced by another thing. Super smart. Yeah, for me, yeah. the scariest thing is a, is a regular job. <laughs> that's, right. That's, 
That's a terrifying prospect to me. And one so, person controls anything that happens with your life. You know, exactly, one, yeah. one boss says, I don't like you. And they just take away everything that you have that controls your day-to-day life. That's scary as hell to me. Yeah. I mean, I know lots of people with, with regular jobs and they just go to work year after year after year. And, and they get, you know, they have these relationships with people in the office or whatever. And, and, and it's that you can't escape it. Right. So they get these horrible, they're living in a, like a horrible reality. And it's not even as, as if they're getting enough money or resources to have a great life outside of that. Right. Working so many hours. I mean, employees expect so much from their workers these days. Yes. You have to be your on call. If you know, if even if you're working full time, they're calling you in for extra shifts and they just expect you to jump and 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 respond and you know instantly to their requests. So you become a kind of a slave to the system. And it's not yeah. really what you want to be doing with your life, but again, yeah. it's on this false promise that you're gonna get some kind of freedom or benefit or you know, buy the things you want. And it doesn't really happen. I know people have been working regular jobs for decades and they still don't have a dime. They don't have 20 bucks in their pocket. Yeah. It's tragic, really. Yeah. I would rather live in the the woods under a pile of dry leaves than than a fate like that. You know, it was, it would be better. I'd go feral, you know, into the woods and and (laughs) eat, eat moss and bark. It doesn't, it doesn't sound that bad, you know? (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's worse than work <laughs> yeah i agree with that so i want to talk like because you jumped right out of like 15 you you tried alcohol and and weed and then like you kind of grew out from there but you jumped right into like never really getting a job you said and then held that out like what what at that time like made you make that decision where, where did you were you coming from any background where family or friends had different uh, ways. So you saw that and you're like, I can too. Or was there something inside you that was like, I want to go travel and busk and play guitar? Like what, what made that initial jumping board for you? What made that happen? It's actually a good question because I've thought about that and I really don't know because I mean, the environment that I was, I grew up in, it was a small town in Southern England called Crawley Newtown, hmm. which was an urban planning disaster area. We had the highest number of registered uh, heroin addicts in the British Isles. Wow. It was a dead-end town. It was built as a kind of experiment for the overspill for London. So they built these new towns, and they were all, like, planned, and they probably looked good on paper, but it was an absolute disaster. Wow. And there was a huge factory estate, and everybody worked in the factory estate. So everybody I knew, including my parents and everybody I went to school with, when they left school, they went to work in the factory estate, and some of them are still there. Wow. Um, so that was that was my preordained fate, you know. And um, I don't know what made me break out of that, but it's just um, I just never saw myself doing that. I could never imagine myself in that type of uh, you know restricted lifestyle. So um, and and then I started traveling, and as soon as I started traveling, that became a lifestyle for the the next ten years. Yeah. So and it was one I was able to maintain through uh, through music. So that was uh, that was the thing, but the actual initial—I don't know why—because I mean, most of the people that I knew in my hometown are still there, right? And um, you know, they—they're—they're uh, they're still doing the things that they were doing, you know, 50, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. So um, I don't know. It was just—I uh, just could never imagine myself doing that. So I guess it was a, a rebellion against that option. I couldn't right. see myself, and so I had to come up with an alternative, and that's. 
basically what I've done all my life is look for alternatives, look for another way of doing it, look for a different different solution to the problem. Yes. Economic problem. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that takes a certain mentality or a certain uh, way of viewing the world to have, to see option C, you know what I mean? Because people don't understand like, there is no black and white. It's all gray. They don't understand like sometimes it's that there's like option A, option B, but there's always option C. There's always option C. You right. can make you can make something new from the situation. Even if someone directly comes to you and they're like, you have to do this thing, you can decide to just not do that thing. Most of the time, you know? So it's it's interesting that you you're not sure of what did that to just be like, hey, I'm gonna create this other option. Maybe it was just the environment where you're like, just growing up and seeing that. And you're like, I know that this is what I don't want to do. So I need to go jump out of here and figure out what I do want to do. Yeah, I think the key, you know? the key factor is uh, imagination. You know, you have to have the imagination to, to break out of uh, the, the status quo or, or uh, orthodoxical thinking. Sure. And um, I don't know exactly where that comes from, but I think that the people that can't break out of it, it's, it's due to a lack of imagination. Hmm. Because they can't imagine an alternative lifestyle or another way of doing things. So they're stuck, stuck on those rails and they can't get off. You know, they're, they're too afraid to get off. I mean, I always recommend when people, people have come to me over the years and said, oh, you know, get advice about what they should do for a living or, you know, what kind of a lifestyle. And I always say, well, you got to work for yourself, you know. Yeah. You've got to start from that. Start from something you're interested in. Something start start from something that you relate to, and then try and make money doing that. Try and make a business out of out of your interests. But it does take a certain amount of imagination, and I think the people that get stuck in a rut for their whole lives is due to a lack of imagination. Fair, fair. So let's talk through uh, this book a little bit because it was like one one reason, uh, like. When I saw some of the the bio that I got from you, uh, there's one portion that I definitely wanted to talk to you about, but then I, I want to hear the rest of this because it sounds like there's just a lot that happened with it. Uh, like one thing with psychedelics and I like, I'm going to be straight. I haven't ever tried psychedelics, but it's on my, my radar, but it's interesting to look like I, when we're talking about option C. I always like to look back and try to figure out why did something happen? You know, when people are like, this is the rules today, or this is the law, or this is what's right or wrong. I want to know what set the precedents to make us believe that that is fact. And there's always stuff that happens along the way. And you look in the US, at least, I don't know so much about the rest of the world because uh, I haven't traveled as much as you, but I've traveled a little bit. But you look at things like the war on drugs here and prohibition and these things that have happened in the US that have drastically changed through law the way that we perceive things entirely. And then that that is something that's set up before different generations are born and then they're born into this rule set, but they don't understand why it came to that point. And there's no context for them for what is bad or good. And all that saying that like now I'm finally seeing in the US, just like weed being legalized in like 26 states here or something like that. And of course that's on the way and cannabis products being used where they were being blocked for testing. Now you're seeing the same thing where now we finally have, I don't know, four or five Ivy league schools that are setting up programs to study psychedelics and their use for trauma and PTSD. And like now we're seeing that come to the table as a conversation. I'm hearing more entrepreneurs getting into space 
and, and, and using this and setting up an infrastructure for it. But it's interesting to see certain things like that that have been blocked for periods of time for basically government things or whatever. What's your experience like? We're talking confessions of an ethical drug dealer. Talk to me about this book a little bit and talk to me about like your take on your timeline through some of these things. I, I'd love to get your insight. Well, the, the, the book is basically a, a treatise on, um, you know, safe and responsible psychedelic drug use and uh, a lot of the benefits. I mean, I, I've never really had any negative experiment of uh, experiences with psychedelics. Yeah. And um, so there's a lot of people that think that, you know, there's all kinds of problems. I've never had a problem with them at all. And I've been using psychedelics for 50 years. And the people that I know throughout my life that have used them, they've used them responsibly, respectfully, and to their advantage to right. enhance the quality of their life. And um, if you use them in that way, then there's really no big issue. And, you know, of course, they've been demonized for so long. Yeah. Also, the big problem is, is they've always been lumped into this massive uh, category called drugs. Right. You know, drugs, drugs, drugs. Well, there's a big difference between a magic mushroom and a flap of crack. Yeah. Yes. So, and, you know, and the reactions to, to people on them, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, big, big difference between being an opiate addict and, uh, you know, self medicating your trauma because you have a horrible life and you hate yourself and doing, you know, uh, half a hit of LSD and walking through the woods with some close friends. Right. Those two things are almost completely unrelated. Right. They're, they're different people that do psychedelics and do the addictive, you know, trauma masking drugs. And uh, they do them for a completely the opposite reason. They want to get into their life, not out of it. Right. So getting right. into it and out of it is the opposite direction, right? And a lot of people have missed that in the conversation, you know, through the whole prohibition and the drug war, you know, it's been, it's been obfuscated that, um, that there's, there's different classifications of drugs. They do very, very different things. They're done for different reasons by completely different people. Yep. And those distinctions are rarely made. It's all drugs, 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 drugs are bad, you know, drugs are addicted, blah, blah, blah. Right. And people have not gotten good information about it. I think that's changing now. I mean, there is a lot of a lot more good information. And that's because, you know, we've, we've gotten past prohibition to some degree. And now we can actually, because they're, they're legal in some places, we can actually do some leg legitimate science. And that's never really been done up until now because the right. drugs are illegal. So you can't test them. You, you couldn't do any testing. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they've been really held back. But we're seeing an explosion of psychedelic psychotherapy right now all across the world. I mean, where the second to last chapter of my book is a kind of summary of what's going on with psychedelic research. And it was such an overwhelming you know, uh, uh, amount of information that I just had to kind of summarize it and hit the, hit the main points. But right, right. to summarize everything that's going on right now would take a whole book in itself because it really is an explosion. It's of, on uh, fire. Yeah. Research. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible, really. It's a yeah. Big change. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. Yeah. I, everything you said, like the way that things are classified and, and that's like the option C that I'm talking about where it's just like, why, why did this happen? Oh, okay. Because of the war on drugs and the war on drugs happened for different political reasons. And it's like, you just need to understand like, why, why does someone say no to you? Why do they say drugs are bad? And why do they say 
all of these are the same thing and whatever. And like these classifications, it's just, those are things that are interesting to me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm an audio engineer, but I'm so fascinated by human behavior. That's really all the time. Like whenever I'm having conversations with people, we're trying to figure out why something does or does not happen. I'm always trying to understand what is it in humans that make these decisions that, that create something that happens, you know, it's very interesting to me. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, the scientific answer is 50% nurture and 50% nature. Hmm. It's kind of, you, it generally comes out 60-40 or 50-50 in terms of, you know, your environmental influences and, and, your, and your genetic propensity. Hmm. Some would argue that genetics are even a bigger role than that, but um, it's, it's obviously a combination of the two. Some things you come with, you know, even babies, and when they're first born, they have different personalities, you know, and different traits. Yeah. They come, they come with that, you know, before they have any, any influence in the world. That makes sense. Yeah. You have some babies that like sleep, no problem. You have others that are yelling right away. And it's like, yeah. there are certain things about them where it's like, there was no time for the nurture part yet. Like they literally exist like this yeah. before anything's been programmed. Right. Yeah, I have two kids. They're like, so they're 37 and 39 now. But um, when they were born, when they were babies, they, their personality was pretty much there. You know, you could see it mm. at, at one month old, at six months old. Wow. So they were obviously different personalities. So they come, you know, there's a lot of it we just come with. I mean, there are those that would argue against free will and say that every decision we make is based on a causal reaction from four billion years ago. Hmm. Because in a deterministic universe, the physical universe is governed by physical laws. And so every single action has a reaction. Hmm. And that causal chain goes all the way back to, like, to the birth of life on, on planet Earth. Sure. And so that's sort of you know, the, the basic argument against free will, that we don't actually make our decisions, that they're based on, on, a, on a causal chain that's, that's happened uh, throughout entire lives and, and before. Dang. It's a pretty good argument, actually. There's a lot of people now arguing for, against free will, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject. It's one of the things that uh, interests me the most at the moment hmm. is whether, whether we actually do have... I mean, we obviously have, we have the illusion of free will, but whether, whether we actually do or not is, uh, is debatable at this point. I'm still on the fence. I, I still think we do because I think we've evolved it. There's a guy called Dan Dennett who's one of the major proponents for free will, Okay. Very good argument that we, uh, you know, that it's an evolved quality. It's an evolved, you know, a consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. And then we've evolved morality and free will in particular from that same sort of evolutionary process that happens on a physical level. Right. But Sam, Sam Harris, on the other hand, makes extremely convincing arguments against free will. So if you look at those two different camps and then the different people in it, it'll make your head spin. <laughs> that's a lot to, that's a lot to think about. And it's a, definitely a lot to think about when you're like tackling your day and all the stuff that you're trying to do on the micro, when you're thinking about those big picture things of like, right. How, how minuscule uh, you are in retrospect to any of those concepts that are that large. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's all part of what's going on. Right. Right. So I guess like, uh, do you want to share like some of the, the pieces of this book? Like what, what made you feel that you needed to write this? Like what compelled you to get this into the world and, and kind of what are the, what are some of the big picture 
concepts that uh, people could expect from this. Like we'll have at the end, we'll link things up. People, if they want to check the book out, they can go in depth, but. Yes, uh, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, available at fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, it was basically just to give a realistic and a personal, because I've had so many experiences over the years in so many different places. I thought it would give a perspective for people on how you can live an ethical, moral, examined life while doing psychedelics. <laughs> and in fact, psychedelics have helped me do those things. They've helped me be more ethical. They've helped mm. me be more philosophical. And they've helped me be more um, uh, ethical. So, you know, they've, they've been nothing but a boon to me. And uh, like I said, there's been so much negative press about, you know, people on drugs, you know. Well, I'm a person that's been on drugs for 50 years and I've never had anything but good experiences. <laughs> my, um, and not even therapeutically, because most people are making the argument these days that psychedelics are useful because they're therapeutic. And I'm, right. sure, I'm sure they are. And, uh, and they are for some people, but I have never used psychedelics therapeutically. I mean, I've never had, I never really felt like I needed therapy for anything. Sure. So um, I've always used them recreationally. And by that, I don't just mean frivolously and for fun, although I've done that too. Uh, more for like inspiration and creativity. Because mm. I think it really does rewire your brain and make you more, uh, more creative. It gives you more creative ways of thinking and it in improves your imagination, which is m maybe why I've had such an alternative lifestyle and come up to these the, you know, solutions to these uh, problems in life, economic solutions and whatnot, is because, um, you know, my brain has been rewired by psychedelics. And I think I've really benefited from that. Yeah. So the book was an attempt to make that case and say, here's a person who's, you know, who's, who's used a lot of psychedelics and uh, they've been nothing but, but positive. Right. Here's like a case study on this based off of 50 years of me living this life. You know what I mean? So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is what happened, right? Because we have no science on it. So this is right. literally just a repertoire. Right. And it was also to share my story with friends and family because there's a lot of people that I'm in. When you have a you know 50-year history, it's, uh, it's, you know, even people that I know now that I've known for five or 10 years, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of stories that they don't, there are a lot of things they don't know about me. So it was just an attempt to uh, to make a you know compact report of my life, really. Very cool. That's awesome to share that because I did write another book about twenty years ago called Rave Culture: An Insider's Overview, and that's also available on Amazon and everywhere. And um, that was kind of a successful book, and it was uh, a book that I wrote after um, becoming a rave promoter. I hmm. discovered uh, rave culture at the age of forty. Did my first hit of MDMA, went okay. to a party, and it really changed my life around. There was another kind of big stepping stone for me, a big change. And so I started promoting raves because um, I thought they were such a great thing. Where were you in that time period, located this is, geographically? This is in Vancouver 20 years ago. Oh, word. Okay. There was a huge boom here of rave culture. So I was so impressed with it that I wrote a book about it called Rave Culture and Insider's Overview. and. Um, that's a sort of a, it's a global overview of the rave movement. I thought it was such an amazing cultural and social movement and musical movement. Um, first new music in 20 years and, uh, and there's, uh, you know, a new sort of ethos around this, this group, entheogenic group mind experience. So, um, 
yeah, I wanted to kind of share that with the world too, because a lot of people, again, there was a lot of people that thought raves were just a whole bunch of teenagers doing too many drugs. But that's actually not what was going on at all. It was a very, very positive kind of youth movement. So I wanted mm. to, I wanted to, you know, spread that to as many people. So I wrote that book about 20 years ago and it's still selling today. That's awesome. Do you still see that movement happening today? Or do you think that that was time, time period specific? Well, the, the, the good old days are gone, you know, the, the boom days, um, it had a peak, like, like all cultural and social movements, they have an arc, you know, they build and then they reach a peak and then they kind of you know, they go down the other side and then they dissipate into other, other things. So the, the rave, the rave movement kind of changed the music changed. That was the main thing. And then, uh, and then the parties changed. They weren't so focused before they were really focused on this idea that everybody, everybody was doing MDMA. Everybody had this, uh, empathetic feeling for themselves and other people and everybody sure. got into this group mind experience. And that was the power of it. That kind of split off as the music fractured. So the music split off into, you know, techno and drum and bass and hip hop forms and you know, dubstep and all the, all the rest of them. So it, it fractured into all these different groups. Mm. And it became a lot less unified, which was the whole strength of the thing in the first place. The whole point was this unification effect. Right. It's so very it interesting to see that fracturing happen in so many different things. Like there, I don't think I've ever seen music in my, I mean, I haven't lived crazy long. I'm 29, but I don't think I've ever seen music be more fractured. And sometimes that's a good thing because sometimes there's like this crazy melting pot stuff that happens where like, musicians from one corner who would never meet musicians from another corner. All of a sudden they're making like music together. And like, it's very, very interesting and cool. But then on the other side, like you're right, like it kind of, uh, it separates and it like clicks up a bunch of different people sometimes where like, I, I don't know that it's the same way that it, it used to have been at an earlier time where people could, would conglomerate more with more of focused genres and uh, activities. Yeah, it used to be a simpler world. Like, you know, when the, when the music really broke out in the 60s, there was, you know, several main genres and everybody was into those things. And right. I don't think it's a bad thing that it's, that it's, that music is more, you know, it's bor everything's borrowing from everything now. It's Particularly cool. in the electronic music. I mean, you can, you can borrow from anything now in electronic music. You can borrow from past, present, future, any culture, any genre. And you can mix them up and mash them up and, and make new music. So I think that's a good thing. That's a step in the right direction. Yeah. But in terms of rave culture, that was very focused on one type of music and one type of, you know, feeling and ethos. And that's, that kind of, that kind of went. With that, by nature of that fracturing, it just formed these different groups of people and that kind of yeah. changed what was happening to be a focus point. Right. Yeah. So musically it's probably a good thing, but culturally and socially it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, it was the end of end of rave culture, really, and there's still parties going on, and uh, you can still get that vibe going now and again. But it's a lot less. It's a lot less common now. It's more or less, uh, you know, gone. Yeah. So I guess uh, you know, fifty years of traveling, fifty years of uh, of psychedelics. Like, what did you see as the differences between, like, you just said that you traveled Africa, Asia. Obviously, you're from Europe, but uh, Vancouver all these places, like what did you see as differences between some of these places that you were staying? 
And what were some of your favorite and, and, or most life-changing and why? Well, I think one of the things about traveling and, and, and seeing a lot of different cultures and a lot of different countries is that it really does, um, you really do. I mean, although there are huge cultural differences and um, the, the, really the thing that comes through is that people are the same everywhere you go. You know, that's the value of travel, I think, is because you do realize that people have exactly the same hopes and dreams. They have exactly the same ambitions. They all want to feed their families. They all want to have a bit of fun. You know, they all want to enjoy, enjoy their lives. They all want to have meaningful relationships and connections with other people. I mean, this is the same anywhere you go. So basically, human beings are the same everywhere. And it's just the cultural differences, which, which are interesting and fascinating. Yeah. But, um, but at the core of it, you, that's the thing that really struck me is that uh, people are really essentially the same. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, like I said, I haven't traveled as much as you, but that when you do travel, that is what you start, start to realize, at least when I started going to other countries. And uh, yeah, like whenever I travel, I like to be in places that are not the tourist spot. I like to go out and like find my place yeah. to like live at where I'm, I'm staying at like a, a normal, normal person's spot, you know, and, and just stay long enough that I get to see what's happening in there. And when you do that and you see like the day-to-day functions, that's where like you really get that humanitarian piece of like, you watch, you're watching those normal things. You're like, Oh, I would do that. And then yeah. you're seeing like the different, the different things that are in place, whether it's, you know, food or currency or, clothing style or like place that people go to get the thing or where those connections happen or, or what was something that was important to that place that makes them do certain things to get those different connections. But at the end of the day, they're all human beings. They're all doing the same. They all need the same things for their head. They all need the same things physically. They're all human beings. It's just about like what went on to form and shape that in that place to make it what it is, which is incredible in its own terms. But yeah, that's that's an amazing part of traveling. That's why I'm, I love traveling so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd be a lot less racism around if you. I mean, if you if you, if you, you'll notice that racists haven't traveled very much. <laughs> Generally, that you know, if somebody yeah. somebody has racist tendencies, it's because they've never really traveled very much, and they haven't seen different cultures, and they haven't discovered that actually people are exactly the same everywhere you go. Yeah. That would be a valuable thing to do. Maybe that would be a way to combat racism is that uh, you uh, you send them on uh, a travel stipend, send them on a trip, <laughs> yeah, drop them into Calcutta in their underwear and, uh, <laughs> for, for three months and see how they survive because they'd have to rely on people around them and make connections. And I think they'd be a lot less racist after that. <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my program for racists. It's hard to be racist when you're around other people that are doing the same things and you also need help. Right. Exactly. 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 What are you supposed to do? Then you want to either way have to cooperate. (laughs) All right. It's coined on the, uh, the show. It's the Jimmy Fritz experiment. And it's, uh, you get a stipend from the waking up from work podcast to just be dropped in uh, Calcutta in your underwear and see what happens. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we're business partners on this one, man. All right. (laughs) What were, uh, what were some like along the way? Cause I know that you said like the rave movement was like a big life change. What were some of like the biggest pivot points or like life altering moments for you? And like, what were those realizations and why? 
Sorry, that's such a loaded up question. Yeah, well, I mean, the psychedelic experience in itself is just kind of is mind open. I think one of the things that it, it, it actually, like, literally and philosophically uh, expands your consciousness. So it kind of rewires your brain. So all of you know the psychedelic experiences of one. That's that's why that's that's kind of the overarching theme of the book, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer by Jimmy Fritz, is that. Uh, you know, it really does change the way you think. And because it changes the way you think, it changes your life. So those are the most important things. I mean, experiences which have the most impact on you are the ones that uh, change your mind and the ones that uh, inspire your imagination. And so, you know, nothing does that quite like psychedelics. You know, lots of other things can do that, of course. But psychedelics get you there fast, you know, <laughs> and reliably. Whereas it's a kind of a longer route to do it other ways. I mean, there's lots of valuable experience. I've had some fantastic experiences on, not on psychedelics, should be noted. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. in terms of the, you know, the focus of this book, it was just, just to say that they do actually change you. They, cha they cha change your brain. They change the way you think. And um, I think for the better, in my case anyway, exclusively. Yeah. No, it's awesome. What were like, I saw, you know, you obviously were talking about like the, the guitar busking and like all these different groups that you played with, but then like, I'm looking through your website, you know, we know now you have two books, you used to be a musician or you are a musician, but playing at different times. And then I see like little short films and stuff. Like, how did you get into each medium or like, what drove you to, what drove you to, you know, it sounds like guitar was pretty young in your life as something. And that became an opportunity more when you spent five, 10 years branching out in that. But I guess like what drove you between the different creatives? Cause that, that fascinates me is like, I, I started drumming in the third grade younger and that's huge for me. But then it's like, as I, I drummed more, I got into like bass and guitar and now I create podcasts. I hope to be a writer sometime. I like, I love, when people bounce around in creatives and then they're experiencing it, like what drove you to be a writer? What drove you into some of the film? And like, what have you seen between the mediums that you've been in? Well, I've always like, you know, I started playing guitar when I was like 17. So that was just a very, very early, early experience. And I've, I've still played it. I mean, I play every day a little bit. And, um, so that's awesome. good for you. Ongoing. But I've always been a lover of uh, film. So I've uh, followed all the, all the film movements through the last 50 years and been always been fascinated with the medium. So about, uh, I guess it was about 25 years ago, I went to film school and did this uh, six month intensive filmmaking course where I learned how to shoot and edit light. And then I started making, made my own company and made some uh, educationals and uh, promotional videos and whatnot, and then branched out into uh, more personal films I wrote a couple of feature-length screenplays because I wanted to make a feature film and direct a feature film. That's awesome. So I wrote two screenplays um, to that end. Couldn't get them made. Got very close with one. But um, it's a very, very tough business. So eventually I realized that, uh, first of all, I wouldn't be able to make the film I wanted to because you have to have so many partners in terms of distribution and, and selling, you know, selling the movie. 
that you have to uh, compromise or everybody's got something to say about it. Everybody wants this, that, the other thing. So sure. eventually you don't really get to make the movie you, you wanted. Yeah. It's so expensive that, um, so I, I sort of stopped, I stopped doing that. But then when I started, um, making music videos, that was a, that was a great outlet because it combined my musical abilities with film. So I made, uh, in the last few years, I've made uh, 26 music videos of my original songs. Wow. Awesome. And they're, they're all available on jimmyfretz.ca. That's my website. And also on that website, you can find all those videos, music videos. And I have a YouTube channel called Jimmy Fritz. Cool. So you can check out the YouTube channel and all, all the videos are on there. And also a bunch of short films. And, uh, film, you know, other, other uh, one-hour documentary I made about a prison, a theater company in a prison hmm. called Theater Behind Bars. That's available at jimmyfritz.ca. That's interesting. And also, uh, I've got like five albums there, five uh, music albums. Some original songs, like t- two or three of them are original, and there's one, one of jazz ballads, and then one of uh, Bob Dylan songs. Cool. So all those are available for a free download on uh, jimmyfritz.ca. So film came in because you had a natural interest for it. And then basically you started getting into actually doing things. And I'm sure like when you're writing the screenplays or like working on director role pieces and you're forwarding that, you're learning things at like a rapid pace. And then that blew out into all this other stuff that you created through film, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I went to film school because I wanted to make my own films. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to work on a set or be a grip or a gaffer or anything else. I just wanted to learn the tools, the basic tools to, to be able to make film. Right. And then, uh, did it for about eight years, had a fantastic time. Um, we made a, several documentaries. We made one about juvenile prostitution. Mm. Uh, we made this, uh, this, uh, documentary in the prison, uh, yeah. theater behind bars. It was an autonomous theater company in uh, in a federal prison and it was totally run and organized and funded by the prisoners interesting and we followed a production from uh, conception to curtain all the way through the whole production and uh, that was a lot of fun we shot in the prison for about eight months on and off wow and took a few months to edit and uh, yeah that was a great project it's a Where lot was of that filmmaking is fantastic was um, that all vancouver too or different area yeah, no, that was shot in Victoria, actually. Okay. So William Head Prison. They have a program called William Head on Stage, or Who's. Huh. And uh, so that was a great experience. But it became apparent after a while, and that brings me, that, that brings me full circle back to the writing. Okay. Because with film, there's a lot of things you can't do, right? You can write, you know, you can write in a script. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous story about the Charge of the Light Brigade. And there's a line in the script that said, and they charged. <laughs> and that took like nine days to shoot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are certain limitations. You're, you know, if you're doing low budget stuff, you've got to stick with a few characters and a f- few locations. So it's kind of limiting in what you can do and say. And you can only, you know, do something you can show. You can't do the interior world of the characters very well. So there are kind of limitations, plus the expense. I mean, it's it's cost you a fortune. You can't really make you can't really make any kind of a, even a low budget movie for less than about five million now, and that's wow. that's, that's low budget these days. You can't do much less than that. 
I had no idea. I had literally zero reference on that. That's incredible. So writing, writing gives you the chance to do anything you want, say anything you want. You can go to the moon and back. You can go into different universes. You can go back in time. You can do anything you like. There's no limits. So that's what I like about writing. And I like the fact that you get to really consider what you're saying and then say what you want to say and make a point, you know, and get something across. So that's very satisfying. So that's what I'm doing now. And I've just finished this uh, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer and I'm working on a new book called The End of Everything. Wow. Uh, so that, you go? That'll be a novel. That might be my last book. I'm not sure. I think so. Wow. That's cool. What will that be on? It's about a guy in a mental asylum who's plotting his own suicide. It's a cheery little little story, but it's going to be hilarious. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's cool, man. It's really interesting to hear that perspective on those mediums because like, I feel like I resonate with that a lot where like I, I came from those backgrounds and like we started a YouTube channel. It's not that big, but I'm having a ton of fun with like learning the videography of it, like learning the yeah. different ways to get B-roll, to mix things, to tell the story, to like get different angles. And my wife and I have been like working to like understand that. And uh, I, I plan to write a book someday as well. And uh, I like I like the differences between the the mediums, but also like what I realize is that all of this creative, it's all the same, like two, right? Yeah. Like you like think through it different, like of how can I portray this thing? How can I use this thing to create this message? It has to be different to make that message come through. Right. The thought process and the planning and the equipment and, and the budgets and everything is different. But it's like, at the end of the day, it's like you feel your same creative conscious. Yes. Making the same types of decisions through those different mediums, you know? Right. You see your flavor come back out the same way after you look at the trends. It's so weird, you know? Yeah, it is the same problem. So how do you make it work, right? So the creative endeavor to me is like, how do you make it work, first of all? And how do you make it interesting? And how do you make it engaging? And these are all just problems that you have to solve. And they're the same problems with any creative area. So whether it's writing or music or anything else, it's... uh, it's the same sort of thing. You're, you're still solving those same problems. And that's what's interesting to me is that you have, you have the problem to solve and then how do you solve it? And you can solve it in a hundred different ways. Right. How, you know, which one resonates most with you? And that's where your personality and your, your own mind comes into it and gets reflected through the art form. That's the one of a kind piece, yeah, right? That's exactly. what makes every person who they are because right. of the way that you've been molded that nature versus nurture that you brought up. Right. Right. The traumas, the amazing things, the experience, the education, all of the things that happened in your life, those little decision-making processes replicated over and over and over again. That's what makes someone's print their print. That's yeah. how their art becomes that one thing because of that cultivation. Yeah, we're all compl- we're all totally individuals, right? We're all we all. We, I mean, we have a lot lot in common, but we are unique. Everybody is a unique individual. Absolutely. If you can tap into that part of you that's unique, crazy. And that part of you that's, that's that's different or sees the world in a slightly different way. That's how you get great artists because they have authenticity, and they're directly translating their uniqueness to their medium through the medium, and so what they create becomes original and authentic. 
Right. So that's really what sets people apart creatively. It's whether whether that authenticity and, and uniqueness comes through. And it's how do you reflect your... Because everybody has it. Everybody is unique and authentic. It's whether they can express it or not, or whether they can mm. translate it into their, into their chosen medium. And if they can, then what you get is something that's original and authentic. And that's, right. that's I think, what we're looking for in any art form. Right. And what, and what people covet, because that the people that create those things effectively through that medium, yes, that's the stuff where you're like, this is 100% irreplaceable. You cannot, when this person's gone, that's it, right? That's like it. that yeah. was the thing that was, that's why I value this because there's scarcity to the creation of this person. Cause now they can't create anymore. And their imprint was pure genius of how they push that creative through the medium perfectly. And I think that's that's true of all great artists. If you think of any great artist in any medium, yeah, what you'll what you'll find is that they have this authenticity and this originality, this unique expression of their individuality that comes through, which nobody else can replicate. Right. Nobody else will ever be able to play guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Nobody else will ever be able to write songs like Bob Dylan. Nobody ever will ever be able to paint like Van Gogh again. Yeah. They were one-offs. You know, they're, they're, the greats are, are one-offs. They, you can't reproduce them. 100%. But you can find it within yourself, hopefully. That's, that's the game for me, is to find that, find that in yourself and reflect that. It's all you can do is try every day, right? Yeah. So my new book is going to be an attempt at that. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely going to grab up your book here. I'm going to read this. I'll hit you yeah. back on that too. Right on. Uh, so I've got six questions that I end the podcast out on that I want to hit you with, but I want to give you one, uh, one more, um, one more question, or I guess like just prod at for people out there, Jimmy, that are, you know, we've, we've had this discussion for a while at this point of, of all the, the, intricacies and differences and paths that you've chosen through life for people that are maybe they're stuck in a spot where they're like, I'm not happy with what's happening, or maybe they're looking to pursue some of these things or pursue some of the journeys that you've done. What would be some like blanket advice that you'd give them or any specific advice even that you'd give them of like, these are some things that I think about, or I hold, uh, you know, value in that would help you pursue that type of life, living alternatively, living creatively, pursuing things in that way. Yeah. And it, and it might not be a creative life. It might be a scientific life or, a, you know, something else or, you know, yeah. like building things or whatever, because we all have different strengths. But I would say, you know, look at, look at yourself and look inside and find out the things that are meaningful to you, things that have meaning things that actually create connection between you and the world and things that you you're interested in yeah start with that because then wherever you go it's going to be at least within your areas of interest and, and involvement it's going to be it's going to be more satisfying than just trying to figure out a way of making money right which is, which is you know a completely different approach what you want to do is figure out a way to have a meaningful meaningful life and that involves connections with, you know, meaningful connections with other people. And that involves looking to yourself to see what you're actually, what, what actually turns you on. Hmm. And then let that be your guide. And then every decision you make is one step closer. It makes, it makes decision making much easier if you know what you're going for. Right. So you, okay, that's where I want to be. That's what I would like my life to be. And then every decision you make from that point onwards is one step closer to that eventual goal. Love that. 
Yeah, like two episodes ago, we talked to a creator of a clothing brand called like Fukit, and it's about saying like fuck it. But like he talks about like living life on purpose, where it's like if you don't know where you're going, you can't ask someone for like GPS coordinates or like directions or anything of like where do I go. It's like you need to know where you're going. You have to have something that guides you of like what direction it is. And if you're not going by that, then you're not driving anywhere. And if you are going by that, then you'll make the right decisions of how to get there. But like you have to know. Like, what is it that you want to do or what is it that you care about or what is it that you're super powered that you're best at for how you can guide that at all? Yeah, or even just an interest, you know, something that you're interested in or fascinated by and right. then move towards that. Make and decisions I, based I, off that. Am I yeah, hurting yeah. helping this one thing? Right, right. Right. Cool. I love that. That was like a very like easy to understand breakdown of a way to think about. So. uh so my, I've got like my six questions. Is that cool for sure. you? Go ahead. Right. Cool. So I ask these to every single person on the show uh, because I like hearing like compounding after we hit a hundred episodes of, of each one, I take those answers and I compound them to look at all between these different people doing different things entirely. What are some of the common, common pieces? What are things that are stand out? It's just fun to ask them like this. So first right. question is why do you wake up and do what you do every day? versus any other thing that you could do in the world? Um, what gets me up in the morning is just, is, I guess it's human connection. I, um, you know, I've organized a lot of events and brought people together and I still do that. And I do it in smaller scales now than I used cool. to. I used to bring like hundreds of people together. But yeah, I have a motivation. I like to, uh, I like to bring people together and create scenes and create social connections because I think if you... You know, if you if you polled all the psychologists in the world, they all say the same thing, that the most important thing for a human being is is meaningful human connection. Mm. And so that to me is an, is an important thing. And that's what gets me up in the morning. Wow. I love that. That's really cool. What along the way, Jimmy, would be like, you know, the the thing that you'd tell five years ago, you or 10 years ago, you don't do this thing like. I learned a lot from this experience, but like, if you could learn this thing without doing it, don't do this thing. Like what's the worst thing along the way? You're like, don't do this. This was bad. I don't have any of those in my past. And I've, I've been asked that question before and I've thought about it before that I don't have anything that I would, that I would go back and change. Yeah. If I went back to see my former self at any other time. I'd say, just carry on. You're doing fine. And it's all going to work out great because <laughs> it, it did. That's awesome. That's a great way. That's a great way to live, man. Like if you live that way, you got to feel good about where you're at at each stage of life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Carry on. You got it, man. You're good. What you're exactly. doing. It seems crazy. Sometimes it's up and down, whatever. At the end of the day, keep doing you. You're good. Yeah. Right? I have no complaints. That's amazing. Good for you. Uh, backside of that. This might be one that you could answer. It would be like, what's the best thing that you've done along the way? What's something like five, 10 years ago, you, you would say, Hey, this was like the best thing ever. You should totally do this thing. Well, I have quite a lot of those too. You know, I'm really glad that I became a musician. I'm really happy that I became a writer. I had a fantastic time filmmaking. I love all the traveling that I've done. So, you know, again, I have no complaints and I wouldn't really change a thing. Cool. So just do the thing. If you, if you need yeah, to just, do it or love it or feel compelled, like don't wait and make that happen. Like we talked at the very beginning of the 
episode, it kind of came full cycle is like, don't, don't kick the can. It's never the best time or the worst time for, for anything. It's like, we have a, a certain amount of time to do whatever exactly. and, and, and mix it up, the best thing, right? change it up. Don't get stuck in a rut, you know? Totally. What would be, uh, what would you say like your superpower is? What's the thing that like, if Jimmy fit, Jim, Jimmy Fritz was a superhero, like what's your superpower? Uh, mind reading. Mind reading. <laughs> well, I guess I mean like, and that question, I mean like human terms, what's like your thing that you're really, really good at that that's like a, a core piece of your character? I think mind reading. I mean, I think I, I, I can uh, assess, I can assess people very quickly hmm. and understand where they're coming from. I have a, I have an understanding of where people are at very, very quickly within five or 10 minutes of meeting somebody, I can sort of suss out who they are. Mm. And, um, yeah. So I think that's, I think mind reading is my, uh, is my superpower. That's important. That, that goes with the human connection piece that you're saying you like to bring people together. Yeah. You're studying, you're studying what people do to connect constantly. Right. right. So I'll put yeah. myself on spot then, man. Like, what's your five to 10 minute reading of me through this podcast? How's that? <laughs> I'll put you on spot. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to, but. No, I, I'll pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy's like. We need well, to hang out. We need to hang out and do some LSD together. I would love that. <laughs> Jimmy's like, uh, I don't want to talk about it. He's going to talk to me after. He's like, I didn't want to say it, but like Dave is actually a piece of shit. And that's why I really oh. didn't want <laughs> Just. No, I wouldn't say that. I think you're doing a good podcast. Oh, thank you, man. I'm glad to have you on it. So uh, what would be a resource or resources that you would recommend to the audience? Could be on any of the stuff that you're about. Obviously, we're going to plug up right after this, actually, all the things that you do specifically. But are there any books, podcasts, YouTube videos, movies, like anything you recommend to people that they should check out, they should get into? Well, as far as uh, psychedelics go, the, I think the best resource on the internet for psychedelics is called Erowid.org, hmm. also known as the Vaults of Erowid. Erowid. E-R-O-W-I-D, okay. the Vaults of Erowid. It's a site that's been around for about 25 years, and it's the most extensive site on every type of drug. I mean, pharmaceuticals and uh, and psychedelics and uh, plants and pharmaceuticals, hmm. every type of drug there is. And you'll get a really good background on it, frequency, dosage, people's experiences, history, pharmacology. It's very, very extensive, and it's sort of the best drug resource. Another, another site I would recommend is maps.org. That's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And they've done, uh, they've been the, the uh, driving force behind uh, the, the uh, use of MDMA for PTSD, which will become a prescription medication for PTSD. And Rick Doblin of MAPS has been working on that for also for about 25 years. And so they do some really great work and they're a great resource for uh, psychedelics as well. I love that. And uh, of course, jimmyfritz.ca <laughs> is a good resource for all your creative needs. Music and films and books and videos and whatnot. And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would recommend everybody check out the, uh, for books, I would say to read literature. You know, forget about the storybooks, forget about the pulp fiction and read some of the great literature. I'm reading Marcel Proust right now. 
Sodom and Gomorrah, Marcel Proust. And the, the writing is mind-blowing. The writing is blowing my mind. So there are some writers out there that, that people don't often find. There's a great history yeah. of literature that you can spend your, the rest of your life reading. And cinema, of course, you know, the French New Wave cinema and the New Italian cinema and uh, all the different film movements. There's a lot of, I mean, people are sort of hung up on the latest, the latest release from Netflix. But there's a whole world of world cinema out there and the history of cinema that's, uh, that's really, really inspiring. And uh, it's worth looking back to that, too. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Like I, I have no, I don't think that I read the quality that you're talking about, but I do try to do like in the morning, I read something that is intellectual. Like it's either like a a biography or it's historical or it's on business or it's something that's informational. And then at nighttime, I try to read something that's more for fun. That is Sometimes I'm such a history buff that sometimes like I, I still just like reading about like a war or something like that to, to read up on it. But like, it's something that is stupid. You know, it is stupid reading. It's just for yeah. entertainment only. But like, I, I see the differences in, uh, I see the differences in different pieces of literature for different pieces of your time in your attitude and your mood. And I believe in that, I guess is all I'm saying about that. Like yeah. I believe in picking up a book and that's for a certain thing and, and for a certain other time of your day or mood that you're in or something, there's another book for that. And, and people should be reading too, like just in general, like I had a rebirth in, in a year or two ago of like really getting back into reading. And I encourage people out there to read in general, but then definitely uh, some, some, some reading and in, in writing is on a different level than a lot of uh, just main mainstream off the book bestsellers that you see that it still aren't bad stuff, but there's some incredible art that's out there. Yeah. It depends why why you're reading it or why you're watching a movie. If it's just for entertainment, then I guess it doesn't matter what it is because anything could be entertaining. But I read books for the writing. I read the writing. I read the mind of the writer and I watch Mm. films for the filmmaking. And I look at that person, right? Painting. Yeah. You like drink in like, who is this mind? Right. You get a vicarious experience of another human mind, which is another way that we connect as human beings. And that's why I think that literature and, and film are so important as mediums, because they make that connection between people. Yeah. I used to do that in uh, in school when I, I used to like, I had a, even though I was an audio major or whatever, like I still had to declare an instrument and go through like all music history and things. And like, I had to study scores. And I remember there were scores that I was studying from uh, like uh, Hector Borlase and, and some of these like 20, uh, 20th century composers and to study the score and like try to follow that person's logic of like, why, uh, why did you pick this instrument? Why did you pick this representation or why did this noise go here? Was it right. just to disrupt and like, just try to sit there and, and read a score and like understand like, why do we make these choices? you're trying to like run around and like chase that person through their creation, figure out like who is this person that existed 200 or 150 years or whatever it was ago. And it's so entertaining to try to chase that mind around and figure out why are we making these choices and who was this person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Mind blowing. Last one is the easiest, my friend. And this, we've got some of these links through our conversation, but where do people keep up with you? 
Where do people find these things? And for people out there listening to this as a podcast, these will be down below in the show notes. So you can just click on these things and you can go to all these different links and keep up with Jimmy. But where are these things? If you're, if they're in a car or something, Jimmy, where do they keep up with you and follow this stuff? Well, the main hub is jimmyfred.ca. And that's cool. where I've got pretty much everything there now. It's sort of centralized. I've had other websites and stuff. And the YouTube channel is a good place to watch the videos, although I've got links to the YouTube channel at jimmyfreds.ca. Cool. YouTube channel is just under Jimmy Fritz too. Okay. And then there's the two books, Confessions of an Ethical Drug Dealer and Rave Culture and Insider's Overview. Cool. Yeah, so once again, people out there, those will be in links down below in the show notes. If you're in your car or walking your dog or whatever the hell you're doing, don't do it in your car, but like wherever you're at, you can just hit in the show notes, the link, and you can scoot right over to Jimmy's stuff. I'll make it really easy for you for his site and his books and everything like that. All right. Sounds good. So Jimmy, thank you for being on the the podcast, man, and sharing literally your lifetime of life with us. It's a lot going on. You're welcome. Nice to be here. And uh, hello from Vancouver, Canada to all your listeners. You're in New England, I believe, right? I am. I'm in Maine. So I'm, I'm right. moving. Uh, last week I was in Lubec and I was on the border of Canada. So I'm up near you a lot, but right, right. Okay. not on your side of Canada. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you, Jimmy. I'll talk okay. to you. This, uh, all the best. Over. Peace out. <laughs>